Welcome to Think Change. I'm Sara Pantuliano, ODI's Chief Executive. Next week, leaders and policymakers will be descending on Paris for the International Summit for a New Global Financial Pact. This is a very ambitious title for a new type of event. It's an event that does not fit with any existing calendar, with any framework of international events. And it takes its name from a statement made by President Macron last November to provide a forum to take stock on all the means and ways of increasing financial solidarity within the South. That's what President Macron said. The summit clearly builds on the so-called Bridgetown Initiative that was launched at the last COP in Sharma Sheikh by Prime Minister Barbados Mia Motley. But actually, the summit goes beyond climate. Um, it goes beyond the, the specific focus of Bridgetown, and it tries to cover a broad range of issues, from poverty to human development to the debt crisis. Politically, the message is clear. It will be a different summit from the others. This time, there will be true pledges and concrete deliverables. This time, it's all about building a new contract between the so-called North and the so-called South. But is this realistic? Can we expect a true dialogue this time? And what is at stake if this summit doesn't deliver on its promises? But to discuss all this, I'd like to welcome Hanan Morsi. Hanan is the Deputy Executive Secretary and the Chief Economist at the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. She joins us from Addis. Along with uh, Hanan, we have Chantal Naidu. Chantal is the founder of Rabia Transitions Initiative in South Africa. She's a research fellow at Sachs University and a visiting researcher at the Grantham Institute of Climate Change and Environment. And then last but not least, we have Frederic Tahan. Frederic is a principal research fellow and the director of the Development and Public Finance Program here at ODI. Well, first of all, I'd like to do a quick roundtable and ask you know, the three of you in less than a minute to tell me how you each feel about the summit. Are you feeling hopeful, doubtful, or are you feeling indifferent? Um, Hanan. Uh, thanks, Sarah. I'm feeling hopeful. I think the summit on a new uh, global financial pact uh, can be a critical milestone to really get us from all the type of discussions that we've been having and move into action that is much needed. So it comes at an opportune time, and I hope that we will take all the discussions and pledges and concrete measures. Great to hear. Chantal, what's your take? Mm. I'll probably say I'm feeling indifferent. Um, and having gone through the agenda and the intentions, there's an element of me wondering I mean, are we tinkering or are we trying to have a transformative discussion? If we're wanting a transformative discussion, is the level of ambition of the conversations appropriate? Are they cutting through the surface of things that we might be comfortable with? Um, or is there just, let's do this because we need to? And what also makes me increasingly uncomfortable is that transformation of the financial system is not only for the global south, it's also for the global north. There are also things that are not working in the global north. Frederic? I would say I, I feel cautiously optimistic. The idea of a, a new contract between uh, global north and global south, it's encouraging, but a lot of its success will depend on fresh additional financial resources being made available. And this is difficult in the current low growth, high inflation environment. So 
there are a lot of expectation and it remains to be seen whether they will be met. There are indeed a lot of expectations. Well, thank you very much. Um, overall, we seem to be cautiously optimistic, but as we heard, we need some concrete new money on the table. Um, Hanan, this summit is taking place in a particularly challenging geopolitical context. You know, there are tensions on a range of important issues between the so-called North and South or the global majority, if you want, you know, the West and China, India, Brazil, with many African countries. Do you think it is possible to put these tensions aside to forge a new pact? Uh, I think it's um, urgent and necessary to do that. And I hope that, you know, this will make uh, leaders on all sides actually moving the agenda. I mean, we have to take into account what is at stake. We have issues of almost like global public goods in terms of climate and what's happening and the need for action. And the majority of countries that are most affected are actually in the South. That should not affect actually the support for climate and for the financing for sustainable development. We need to bridge over the divides to actually make sure that we are not affecting the lives of, you know, billions of people in the South um, because of political frictions. I mean, this applies from issues of fixing the, you know, global debt architecture and common framework to ensuring the voice and representation. So it, there are so many elements to it that need to be achieved and can only be achieved by just going beyond the specific country's interest and more toward what would be the cost of non-action and what is the global public good that we are trying to preserve. Thanks, Anan. Making progress to address the climate crisis is clearly critical to the conversation. Uh, Chantal, we all know the scale of financial flows that are needed to address the climate change mitigation, adaptation and loss and damage challenges. But the pledge of uh, $100 billion of climate finance per year made in the past has not been met. Do you think we're on the verge of a breakthrough? Thank you for this question, but it's a hard one, right? Especially if you've been working in this space for a while. So my heart says don't lose hope because be an eternal optimist, right? But in light of all of the other things that are happening in our world, the geopolitical challenges, just things that I'm observing as being really difficult, the time when there seemed to be you know, flows that would be sufficient, where there was both flows and stocks of capital rather to move, um, the intention was was held back. Now we're seeing constrained capital and we're wanting to push for intention at a time when there's, I mean, some might say there isn't scarcity, but are we at that moment where we've suddenly, you know, found our, our lion heart again and this is going to happen? So I don't know. I don't know if we had a, a breakthrough. Hanan, what should G7 countries, rich countries do that would help restore trust with low and middle income countries? Thank you, Sarah, for the question. You know, we've been working at uh, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa with African ministers for a while now on issues of global financial architecture and what need to be fixed. We have a high-level working group that is composed of African ministers of finance, economic development and planning. It includes uh, African Union, African Development Bank, Afrixim Bank, the IMF and World Bank. 
And we've been meeting regularly to discuss and reach consensus on what type of reforms Africa needs going forward to have a more just and inclusive international financial system. So all the these discussions have yielded agreement and consensus around key asks that have been articulated. What we need now is for the G7 to actually, you know, support to take that forward to fix this existing system that is not working well for developing countries and particularly African countries. There are many different asks that are involved in different areas. But for the summit, I think there are uh, perhaps four important ones that I would say is would be key to uh, focus on. One is the issue of the cost of borrowing. Part of the issues that African countries are facing after having been hit by a series of global shocks that eroded their fiscal policy that have been rising and has the financing has become scarce and unaffordable. So it's very important to make sure that we have availability of concessional financing and that across the board, I mean, whether it's Bretton Woods Institution, um, through multilateral development banks, but we need more concessional financing because we need to make sure that there is sufficient affordable financing for recovery, climate action, and investments, investments in SDGs. So that would be really key. Second, uh, we need to make sure that we have a functioning system for debt resolution. So we need to have an overhaul of the G20 common framework. And we need that system to work in a more efficient, time-bound, and transparent way to allow standstill uh, of debt service upon application to expand to middle-income countries. So we need to really have a debt restructuring mechanism that works in a timely manner. Third, we need to make sure that African countries have a meaningful voice at the table across the board. Of course, that includes making sure that, you know, the African seat in the G20, because that also will give a voice into the discussions about, you know, the debt architecture that goes through the G20, uh, but also make sure that they have sufficient levels of representation at different global forums and in global uh, institutions like the IMF, World Bank, and others. Uh, fourth, I think it would be very useful to avail forms of guarantees that can uh, help in reducing the cost, official guarantees that can help in uh, availing financing for countries and that can support SDG investments that can support climate action. We have seen that before being done for political reasons. I don't see why we cannot have this for a global public good. Thank you, Anans, for very concrete suggestions. I know are in the mix of what is being discussed in Paris, but I think you're right. It's really critical to help restore that trust um, that's been so eroded, particularly after COVID and I guess also in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Chantal, one other big discussion is on energy transition. You've worked very closely in South Africa on the just 
energy transition partnerships, which is basically a country-specific global collaboration around energy transition. What has been your experience and what lessons do you think can be taken to the Paris Summit? Thank you. This is one of my favorite questions to answer. Um, the experience of working on the JPs last year on a very personal level was a joy. I mean, it was a challenge, of course, but the joyful experience I had was that it was the first time that concretely Global North countries were sitting down and we were having hard conversations about what it would take both in terms of the application of resources as well as the quality of funding that needed to be put forward to help South Africa fast track its transition agenda. And, and just the quality of those conversations, both that would that it opened up at a national level was really essential. I know there's a lot of criticism still that abounds about the jet and, and the different platforms, but when you've got really committed minds around the table on both sides of the table, north and south, there's a lot of creativity that can ensue, especially if both sides have the courage to say precisely what they need. So we were able to have needs-based conversations, principles-based conversations, practical conversations about what it would take at the intermediary level. We were able to also look at and ask for, and even though we didn't quite get in the 8.5 billion package necessarily, the quality and distribution of instruments that we were looking for, we were able to have a conversation about what we needed. We talk about needs-based funding and country ownership, but what does that look like in practice when you're negotiating and when you're having a conversation? So I find that the JETs and the JET partnerships are wonderful aspirational tools that both North and South can engage in, um, but it really depends on the implementation and, and where do you think the responsibility of action lies? The other lesson is, especially from a Global North perspective, it's not good enough just to make the pledge and commit the funding. It's also important to look at how is what the ask from the recipient country, what does it mean for intermediaries, for access to funding, for the quality of funding, for the terms and conditions of that funding, whether you're going to give project level funding or you're going to give a facility on the one end. So there's a change process. The JET piece can work if both Global North and Global South recognize that there's both changes required on both sides for implementation. And I don't think we're there yet. I think the, the narrative is still very much, if we're giving you funding, you've got to do all the hard work and then you get the funding. And that's quite undignified. So it also set that out for me that there, that there isn't a balance in the conversation at times when it gets down to implementation issues. But both, I mean, it, it was a very good experience all around from a learning perspective. And I think it's important to have national capabilities. We've got very strong technical institutions in South Africa that was able to weigh in. We've got a strong treasury. And there was a lot of really um, bright people that came around together to put the investment plan together and to engage with the funders. And there was good intentions on the funder side. But we, we asked the hard questions, but we didn't find all of the answers. Frederick, there's been a big discussion on this emphasis on climate and environment because, you know, some countries say that it's being perceived as being made at the expense of poverty reduction and economic growth. You know, this trade-off that's been presented between climate on one side and development on the other. What's the research showing? I think that perception comes from a number of reasons, but one reason that's really drive the, the resentment 
is around the flow of climate finance and the fact that the pledge of 100 billion has not been materialized. And even if it is materialized, well, whether it will actually be provided at the expense of traditional development funding. It was always intended to be new and additional funding. But when we look at data, financial flows and climate finance flows in the last 10 years to assess what the situation is. And we saw that there have been growth of combined official flows and climate finance, but the growth is not sufficient to justify the growth in climate finance. So it is clear that there have been a transfer of resources from traditional assistance funding towards climate finance. So the question is, has this transfer been a cross-sector reallocation? A reallocation would suggest that money provided to traditional non-climate-focused sectors, such as health and education, would see the flow of finance dropping um, for climate finance going to other sectors. And when we look at the data, we saw that there has not been a cross-sector reallocation. The available funding for these sectors has remained quite, quite flat over the years. Now we look at intra-sector reallocation, whether the, the sector, which are, can be more traditionally associated with climate-affected projects like transport and energy, where we have seen a growth of climate finance. And yes, we have. So that means that um, climate finance has come about not new money, but rather a rising proportion of finance in these sectors being recorded as climate finance. Is it bad? I going to ask that because it sounds like you know, a win-win. <laughs> exactly, because the question is actually, if it's just a pure rebranding, then we have a problem. It feels like it's becoming a, a bit of a, an accounting exercise to, to pretend focusing on climate finance, but really there is no new money. It's just rebranding, but it is about realignment of investment. Then it could be a win-win. Um, it dissipates the idea that climate and development is a zero sum game. So let's take, for example, agriculture. If there is a project which is about investing in green technology, that can support both food security and climate adaptation. And that would, I think, be in fact a, a reinforcing of the idea, which we in ODI, we believe very strongly that these high complex goals, they are not a zero sum game. Um, we think, in fact, that the Paris summit should approach the question as, in effect, how to best develop in a climate change world. Great. Let me bring in Chantal on this. Uh, looking at this discussion from South Africa, how do you think climate can be addressed in conjunction with development? So the framing in our investment plan and the narrative that, that seemed to resonate was that in using the analogy of you can't pull a carpet out with replacing it with something else being because you will destabilize and a transition context obviously is quite destabilizing De development is supposed to create strong stabilizing factors whereas energy transitions actually is, is destabilizing a status quo so in the investment plan our narrative was about 
strongly needing to sequence it because bearing in mind what the national development priorities are, those could not be undermined. Livelihoods and lives are still of primary essence. So it's how we sequence the transition or the climate response in that instance in a particular way. And of course, that's a, a transition-focused investment, meaning certain types of investment has to lead. And then there needs to be certain social safety nets so that the development objectives and returns are not undermined in any way. But I mean, that that takes some engineering in terms of sequencing, you know, actions by government, actions by private sector. So we didn't market the JET investment plan as a climate response or development response. It wasn't either or, it was both, because that's that language of climate for most for most developing countries doesn't land. And I think that the binary approach that's been taken in the UN system was very valuable up to a point in time to get the issues on the table. But we need a convergence agenda that it shouldn't be structured in such a binary way and the flow shouldn't be so separate. Um, and there needs to be some concessions for the reality of what countries are facing on the, on the, you know, on the ground. I mean, climate generates health issues. You know, you've got disease vectors. It destroys infrastructure. It, it is always a developmental concern, especially in areas that are hard pressed to be able to to replace that infrastructure. I mean, there has been a lot of discussion on how multilateral development banks need to change to be part of the solution. Uh, Frederic, what does this mean? MDB are definitely being perceived as part of a solution because they have in effect been designed to address development issues. It's in their mandate, but they're also focusing on climate increasingly as a top priority. The problem is that the overall funding they, they provide is still relatively modest. Um, for example, in 2019, the gross operation in low-income country and middle-income country around the world throughout all the MDBs totaled 165.5 billion. So it sounds like a lot of money, but uh, the funding needs for meeting the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and the Paris Alignment of the Climate is, is, is expressing trillions. So we are far off the, the objective. So the reason why MDBs are brought into the discussion is because Hanan mentioned that before, MDBs provide concessional funding. So funding that is below market rate. And at the time of interest rate rise, a fiscal squeeze in many emerging markets, the availability of concessional finance is essential. So we, we in ODI, we have spent a lot of time looking at MDB and DFI in great detail and how they operate. And we believe, like many others, that there are opportunities to reform. And there are two ways we think MDBs should reform. One is that they should do more. So what does it mean to do more? They need to optimize their capital. That is meaning doing more with the same. And this has the advantage of requiring no new money. So it is a clear win-win and a lot of MDBs have started that process and the Paris summit could be a good opportunity to, to take stock and see how, how far we can go. But there is also capital increase that is in the cart for some MDBs. 
There is a lot of discussion about the International Development Agency, IDA, uh, which is part of a World Bank group, which is dedicated to provide funding for low-income countries and needs urgent replenishing. And that will be a, a very strong focus, we know, at the Paris Summit, but also as part of a World Bank evolution roadmap. There are great expectations from the global south. Again, we heard Hanan talking about the, the assessment of needs. So that will be uh, very important that there is solidarity in those difficult times through new financial instruments. But also MDB needs to work better. And we hear a lot about MDBs needing to work as a system. The perception is that MDBs are not really taking advantage of collaboration between them. They are not sharing resources. They are too often, in fact, competing or operating in silos. And that needs to change. But let's, let's step back. Who is in charge of MDBs? These are the shareholders. Fundamentally, the discussion around MDBs is a political one. It's for shareholders to decide how those institutions that they own, how they need to evolve. That couldn't be clearer, uh, Frederic. Um, Hannah, you've worked in many international organizations and multilateral development banks. Is the sort of change Frederic is talking about possible in your view? I do believe it's actually possible. And I think it's crucial. Part of the issue is to make sure that we are in a situation where there is availability of affordable financing going forward. And MDB play a crucial role in that context. They are able to provide more affordable rates. They have the advantage of also being able to leverage resources. So it would be very important to make sure that uh, the role is, is becoming bigger as we go forward. And to do that, I agree with Frederick that, you know, we need to make sure that they're optimizing their balance sheets, taking more calculated risks, and also that they have um, more concessional resources. So that's where the G7 uh, comes in that they need to ensure availability of concessional funds for MDBs. And that, of course, includes IDA, which we are worried about, you know, the cliff of 10 billion that they are going to have over the next two years. But also, I think there are other things that we need to think about. We need to increase the capitalization of MDBs to enable them to have a bigger role. Second, we should also consider the uh, rechanneling of the IMF special drawing rights through multilateral development banks. So we need five countries to support that, to make it operational. And we hope, we really hope that Paris Summit will be this you know, milestone that we can get the five countries to make it happen. Because not only that these funds will be available, but also the MDBs can then, you know, uh, have a leverage of three to four times whatever committed resources to them and will be able to give much needed liquidity to the global south. Thanks, Anand. Uh, Frederic, another important issue for the Paris discussion is the mobilization of private sector for investing in emerging markets. Uh, what are the obstacles to achieving this? And do you think the Paris summit can deliver anything to help address them? 
this is a very well-known issue. And unfortunately, um, the challenge is proving very hard to crack. But the obstacles are, are very well-known, so I'll go through them quite quickly. First of all, there is a perceived or real risk of investing in emerging markets. And that can be linked to the country risk, the risk of doing business in this country, for example, climate the policy and the political and regulatory framework around fossil fuel, renewable energy can make investment in renewable energy viable or not. Depends on the cost associated with, with a renewable energy, etc. So work needs, needs to be done and should continue to be done. Uh, another obstacle is the lack of data. Investors need data to assess the risk and to be able to gauge whether the risk is in line with their risk appetite, which is very well defined, especially institutional investors. And if data aren't available, this limits considerably availability to invest. There is something which is not so often discussed, but also very important, is the size of his investment. Investors need to have a certain size in order to be able to uh, to participate in investment. So small investment, some project can be a couple of million dollars that they need to be pulled into a vehicle to make the investment attractive for particular large institutional investors from the global north. Ready projects in which to invest. It's almost like a matchmaking between investors and projects. So project preparation facilities, vehicles that can be very catalytic and surely they need to be, to be more. And in effect, MDBs, we are back to them. They can be part of a solution because they know emerging markets very well. They can lead investors. You can share the risk with investors. You can provide a guarantee to take away part of the risk borne by investors, which make then the project investable. And I think we're going to see a lot of shifting of MDBs from a model where the original project, and they hold them on their balance sheet, to a model where they originate and they share or they transfer to um, private investors. So I think this trend will accelerate considerably in the next few years. Thanks, Frederic. We are almost at time, but I really need to ask an important last question to um, Hanan, because of course, all of this is happening at a time where for a number of complex reasons, many countries and especially low-income countries face a very high level of indebtedness. Um, and you mentioned that before, but what needs to happen to address this? Indeed, what we need is to make sure that um, we have a functioning uh, debt resolution framework. And this is where the overhauling of the G20 common framework is essential. Since its establishment in two years, uh, no structuring has come about for Zambia and Ethiopia while only Chad came to a tentative conclusion at the end of 2022. Uh, the framework needs reforms, including to have automatic loan debt service payments upon application, to extend to middle-income countries, and to have a comparability of treatment and expand the committees to include also the private sector. So we need to advance on these uh, issues so that actually 
countries can proactively resolve these issues before it's too late. We need to make sure that there is available financing at scale and affordable to developing countries to meet the needs. And that's really, that's what ties, you know, all the discussion that we have been having together. Thank you so much, uh, Hanan, Chantal, and Frédéric, for this very open and frank discussion. Uh, before we close, in 20 seconds, what is the one thing you would like to see in this new contract? Frédéric. Paris summit seemed to be all about money, but I don't think it should be all about money. I think it should be about attitude. I want to see a platform where North and South listen to each other's concern and ideas with respect in an open mind. A return to global cooperation, that's what I would like to see. I love that. Hanan? I'd like to see action. I'd like concrete four areas that I've outlined, uh, you know, wins on these areas. Most of them are low-hanging fruits. So I think we've had enough platforms of discussion. We need platforms of action to make sure that we don't have lost decades ahead for the South. Chantal, what would you like to see? A change in perspective that finance flows are meant to serve. It's meant to give dignity to the poor and vulnerable. But the narrative of all of these finance pacts is about making the private sector feel good and creating space for them to do what they need to be doing anyway. The conversation is all about shifting responsibilities. So we public and private sector can agree that the role of finance is to serve and climate affects the most vulnerable and the poor and give back dignity. That would be great. Thank you. I think we've heard very clearly from all of you how urgent and necessary it is to forge a new pact. It's obviously critical to help rebuild the trust between low and middle income countries and rich countries. But above all, it's critical to really help address these shared global challenges, you know, like climate and inequality that we've been talking about. And so, you know, you started saying that there is cautious optimism about what can emerge from Paris. But I would add that, of course, the key will be to maintain the political momentum to make sure that whatever pact may emerge will be translated into real and concrete action, as Anand is saying, you know, to really return uh, to more constructive global cooperation. Um, thank you to our listeners. Um, as always, the research and the other resources we refer to in these episodes will be in the show notes. We hope you will join us again next week. We will be discussing the contribution of refugee-led organizations on World Refugee Day. And if you enjoy the show, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening.